Welcome to the Millennium Live Podcast. We're exploring life and leadership. Meet Dennis Millay, a seasoned leader in the retail industry with a proven track record of driving results and fostering a culture of strong leadership. With a wealth of experience in both operational management and corporate strategy development spanning over 30 years, Dennis has been a key player in shaping the success of several prominent retail organizations. He served as the Executive Vice President of Supply Chain and IT at Michaels. He played a crucial role in driving the company's supply chain strategy, overseeing international transportation, distribution center operations for both brick-and-mortar stores and e-commerce, and custom frame manufacturing. Before joining Michaels in 2013, Dennis held the position of Senior Vice President at Ulta, where he was responsible for merchandise planning, inventory management, distribution, logistics, transportation, and overall supply chain strategy. Throughout his career, he accumulated valuable experience during his more than 15 years in leadership roles at Meyer, a prominent retail chain, and as a partner with Accenture, a leading global consulting firm, and most recently held the first ever role of Chief Supply Chain Officer at Macy's. The Millennium Alliance was lucky enough to have Dennis as its keynote speaker on October 3rd at the Digital Supply Chain Transformation Assembly. His extensive expertise and accomplishments in retail have made him a respected figure in the field of supply chain management, and we're happy to have him on the Millennium Live podcast. Hello there, Millennium Live listeners. Connor Tui here, and I'm happy to be back for another great episode. He is just a, such a leader in supply chain in the industry dennis welcome to the millennium live podcast it's it's really a, a pleasure to have you on today hey connor it's a pleasure to be on i'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation uh, i thoroughly enjoyed the conference in barton creek i thought it was very well done and a lot of great people so i'm looking forward to today and looking forward to you know sharing with you and the listeners whatever's on your mind I appreciate that and i want to start this podcast episode kind of diving into your past Prior to having a great career, you were just a young kid growing up in Finley, Ohio. So how was growing up in Finley, Ohio? I mean, you, you had a pretty great upbringing. You had your mom and dad. They both worked at Marathon Oil Company, as you said, prior to the podcast. You met your wife in high school and just celebrated 40 years with her. What's it like growing up in Finley, Ohio? You know, Finley's a small town. You know, you get a lot of the small town vibes, but you also don't have all the big city pieces that go along with it. And so it, it was enjoyable. I, you know, I was there my entire childhood all the way until I uh, left to go to college. But uh, from a small town perspective, you know, a lot of times you're in a small town and you're thinking, geez, I can't wait to to get out and go do something and see the world. And then when you get kids, you're thinking, I kind of need a place where I want to bring them up. And, and that's kind of what Finley was. It was a great experience for me. As you mentioned, I met my wife in high school. We got married right out of high school and just celebrated 40 years. Got my first job at the McDonald's across the street from the high school where I was a, I was a manager when I was a junior in high school and, and ran shifts and, and really started to learn you know, at that point about leadership and about working with people and about the importance of team and interacting with you know people who aren't like me. We had a very diverse group of folks that worked at, at that location. So I would say I learned a lot. It kind of shaped a lot of how I think and shaped a lot of kind of who I am. Reminds me every day not to be small-minded, but to think broad about the world because it's a lot bigger than than the small little universe that you may live in. Yeah, well said. And um, it was, was education something that was 
is stressed in your household? Did your parents stress that education that you needed to go get a good education? Or or did you just naturally want to be, you know, someone who is pretty successful, someone who was driven, someone who took their schoolwork seriously? What was that like for you? What role did education play uh, early on for you, Dennis? You know, a couple of things. One, you know, education was definitely stressed in in my household. My mom and dad both came from uh, Michigan. My dad actually only went to school through the eighth grade. You know, this is back in the 40s, 50s. The world was different then. He left in eighth grade, did some things as a juvenile that probably he wished he wouldn't have done and wound up joining the army, got out and and made a name for himself. He, uh, you know, he rose to you know, a manager level uh, within the marketing department and accounts payable for for, uh, for Marathon, which was awesome. But he worked really hard to go do that. And from a very early age, it was very uh, well known and clear to us that we as children, we were all going to college and that that was something that, uh, you know, was really a, a driving force for him. And, and there wasn't really much discussion of not doing it. And so making sure you had the grades, making sure that you you know, didn't get yourself into trouble academically and you could get a, you know, you could get into a good school was was very, very important and stress a lot as we were growing up. So you end up going to the Ohio State University, which uh, 83 to 88, and and you studied electrical engineering. So I'm kind of interested and fascinated by that, you know, given where your career ended up going. So I, I bet a younger dentist had some uh, other interests, which is really cool. So tell me about uh, how, you know, studying electrical engineering at Ohio State and perhaps what was it like going to college in the 80s? Because it's a lot different now with all the technology and just the way, you know, we interact with each other now. Yeah, you know, so I, I'll say I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Ohio State. You know, I probably had a little bit of a different experience than some of the other students there, given that I was married and my wife and I were struggling to, you know, pay for our apartment and go to school and do all those other things. But uh, it, it was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed my time at school. I went into electrical engineering for a couple of reasons. One, I really loved math. Math was something that came to me relatively easily. The physics part of it and the science part of it was super interesting. And I chose engineering because, you know, engineering to me is all about logical ways to solve problems. And I really enjoy being in the middle of solutioning and trying to understand what comes next and how do you deal with a problem and what would you do different? And so it was a really interesting experience for me. I did a couple of really cool things. I worked uh, for the high energy physics department at Ohio State for three years where we were building a super collider and I was part of the team that was building the electronics that sat on top of it. I spent a couple of years building a, a digital holographic adder uh, with one of the professors there as a research uh, assistant and project. And so I had a ton of great experiences and learned a lot and got involved in a whole lot of things. But, you know, coming out of it, I, I kind of realized a couple of things. One, I loved the university and I loved the learning that I got around uh, extending, you know, both my understanding of math and science and analytics. But I was not in love with electrical engineering. And as a young kid graduating after spending five years in school and being married and knowing that uh, the next thing for me was to get a job, it was a, it was an opportunity for me to really think differently about my career and where I wanted to go. And that's ultimately how I wound up joining Accenture and getting into consulting. That's kind of a nice segue into your professional career because you do, you go to Accenture and you were there for, what was it, 17 years? 17 years. How did Accenture uh, come about? Did you get an interview with them or were you exploring uh, just to a, a partner like that? Or how did that whole experience come about? 
yeah, in full transparency, I didn't know. And at the time it was Arthur Anderson. I didn't know who Arthur Anderson was or what they did. And so I, you know, I had a couple of interviews and, and opportunities to go to companies, you know, to be an electrical engineer. But like I'd mentioned that I kind of realized that, you know, being in a lab and working on, on electronics wasn't really what I wanted to go do. And the idea of working with people and helping to solve problems and being more integrated into an organization. And so Accenture Anderson Consulting at the time was going down a path of wanting to hire engineers because they recognize the problem solving capabilities that you get taught in engineering with the intent that they would teach you business and they would teach you everything you needed to know to be successful. And so the opportunity came up to interview them. They came out on campus. I did a little bit of research to see who they were. I went to the interview, had a great conversation with them, really enjoyed the talk and, and what they did and the people that I met young, growing, fast-moving companies solving different problems every day. So I joined. I joined actually on the technology side because of my electrical engineering background, but quickly got to the point where, you know, sitting in a room with technologists and business people and realizing that the technology people didn't know what the business people were saying and the business people didn't know what the technology people were saying. And I had this unique ability to translate between the two of them, got me really more interested in going down business process and strategy. And so I spent maybe a year, six months in the technology group and then moved over into business process, re-engineering and strategy, uh, got connected with a partner who I really enjoyed working with um, in retail and consumer products. And, you know, the next 16 years, we bounced around and went to different companies and got to solve, you know, really large, complex problems within organizations to try to help them become better. Well, that's that's awesome. I think the years like that go by so so quickly that you don't realize that they accumulate to you know over fifteen years at at a certain place. When did you know, or when did you feel like it was time to move on from Accenture? Was it something where you know you needed a new challenge, or did you just feel like this it was a time for a change? What triggered the leave in May of '05? You know, it's interesting that you know to your point, the seventeen years went by super fast. And the beauty of a consulting organization is you're always going to new clients and new companies, and there's always new challenges and new things to work through. And so the 17 years went by super fast. But, you know, my wife and I, we didn't have children for the first probably 10 years of our marriage, just because we were working on getting through school and building career and all that other stuff. And so, you know, we started to have kids and, you know, my daughters were getting to the age where there were events going on. And I had been thinking about leaving. Accenture had gone through some changes, right? As I said, we, when I joined, it was Arthur Anderson. Then we became Anderson Consulting. Then we became Accenture, getting ready to go public or we'd actually gone public. And so the, the company was going through some changes. There was a little bit of a new culture and a new thing uh, going through, which was fine and, and it had been very successful for them. I, I believe my nine-year-old daughter at the time came up to me and said, you know, hey, dad, I have a choir concert on Tuesday. And then she looked at me and she said, I, I don't know why I'm telling you, you won't be there. And I was like that. That to me was a, a defining moment of now it's time for me to to me to leave and focus a little bit on growing my career outside of consulting and actually, you know, living and growing and leading the teams that I've been, you know, consulting with, but also get back into spending time with my family and my kids and being able to experience all the things that go along with that. And that's important. Maybe that moment from your daughter was uh, was meant to be. And, you know, you, that flashbulb moment that you needed to change. So that led you to Mayor, which was um, where you became the group vice president of merchandising and supply chain management. Was that the uh, with the first uh, role that you took on that was you were in charge of supply chain? You know, you spent six over six years there. 
in that role. So talk a little bit about maybe the skills that you learned there, how that led to some of the other positions that we'll talk about coming up. Yeah. So, you know, coming out of consulting, I think is always a challenge um, because the consulting world does work differently than what industry does and your focus and uh, the things that you've got to go do and and your team is different and, and the mentality of your team or the the belief that your team has and what they want out of their careers are different than, you know, most people in consulting, at least back in the day when I was there. And so Meyer offered me, it was actually a really good move for me. And it was a great uh, company to join. It's a family owned business up in the Midwest, a super center. So everything from food uh, down to uh, hard lines and, and fashion and software been around for a long time, actually was the first super center in the United States. But a great group of people and a great team for me to join and really learn how that transition would be and how that transition would work and and gave me the opportunity to really leverage what I'd learned in consulting, both from a problem solving perspective and a leadership perspective, but then enhance that uh, to what does that mean to be an industry and what does that mean to own it and run it? And so you know, Meyer was the first opportunity for me to actually have, you know, kind of a P&L type responsibility where I I was responsible for the guy who had to make the decisions on what inventory we were going to carry and where we were going to carry it, how much of it did we need, how was it going to flow, all of those pieces. And so it was different than, you know, being the guy making the suggestions and throwing out ideas to being the guy that is, okay, now, now I actually have to have to go do this and I have to make this work on an ongoing basis. And it's not just about having a good idea and pushing somebody to implement it. It's about leading and managing and running a team on a, on a daily basis. One of the key topics of a podcast like this is leadership. And I always want to talk about leadership with executives and what it, what it actually means to them of being a leader. What is a leader and what makes a good leader? One of the things that people have always said about you in your career is how well you build and develop talent. And that's, to me, a fantastic leader. Not only that, but someone who can create leaders to lead for the future and the next generation can really have such a big impact on a business, but on a career. So Dennis, in, in what, in, in very like simple terms, if you want to, but what is a leader and what makes a good leader and how, when you get into positions of leadership, do you help build and retain talent for the future? It's a great question. And I, I agree with you. I think it's a very confusing topic when people talk about it. And so I kind of defined it a little bit in my own way. And I think sometimes people talk about leadership. And when they talk about leadership, they start talking about positions and teams who work for you. There's a a component of leadership that is about that, but that's really more managing a team. And so what I've always done and and what I believe in, it was instilled in me in my very first job at uh, Accenture from a partner, is that everybody who walks in the door is a leader. Um, You have the opportunity to lead on a daily basis. And while you're not necessarily making all the decisions, you have decisions that you're able to make and you can push those decisions up. And so the first thing I tell my team all the time is that leadership is not about a role. It's not about who works for you. It's not about anything. It's about how you show up every day. And as you grow in your career, your responsibilities change, the decisions that you make change, and the way you interact grows and develops, but it's still the same core principles as being a leader. And and we actually spent some time actually putting it down on a piece of paper because we thought it was really important as we were building the team at Macy's to go do this. And we identified kind of like the five key things that we said 
we want everybody to show up with. And the first one was all about transparency. It's about being able to talk about what you're doing, being able to share the facts. If something didn't go right, if it didn't work, if it's not the way you want it to be, you need to be transparent about that because if you're not, nobody can help you and nobody can solve the problem. If you need help, raise your hand and ask a question. We talked about leading authentically, which is show up as yourself, right? It's it's easy to go read a leadership book and come back and recite the 10 things that it tells you to go do or pretend that you know those or use a lot of big words that you don't really understand. But if you don't show up every day as a person and the person who you are and what you value, it's going to be really hard for you to engage and to be a leader. We talked a lot about valuing each other, valuing each other and the team. And so that's not, that's not saying you spread decisions out and things are consensus. It's about listening. It's about understanding is about putting value in what you hear other people say. And so whether that's, you know, again, the newest person who just joined the team or the person who's been there for 40 years, each one of them have value. And how do you listen to that? The other one was being self-reflective and this idea that, you know, leaders have all the answers and you're always going to be perfect is, is never true. Being able to take a step back and being self-reflective and ask yourself, did I do that right? Could I have done that different? Should I be thinking differently? How do I feel about that? How do others feel about that? Would I have handled that in a different way? Allows you to grow and build and create your own leadership skill. And the last one is drive results and, and being really focused about being able to deliver the results that you need to deliver. But that starts with understanding what the results are and making sure that you're delivering something that is meaningful. And so we really kind of landed on those five things as kind of core tenets of what leadership means and how everybody in the organization can be a leader. And then what I try to do in my role is empower my team to live that every day. And so I'm a big believer in decision rights and big believer in making sure the organizational structure is set up so that decisions can be made effectively. And, and so I, I leverage my team. I very rarely would overstep somebody who works for me, who runs a function to say, no, we're going to do this in transportation instead of what you wanted to I wouldn't do that. I would have a conversation with them, talk about the pros and cons. If I thought it was a really bad decision, I, I may do that. But most of the time, I want them to be accountable for the work that they're doing. I want them to be able to be all of those things I just talked about, about driving results. And, and not that it's me, but it's our team in general. And so long-winded way of answering your question, but I, I do think there's an opportunity for everybody, regardless of first day on the job or last day on the job to when whether you have 50 people working for you or nobody working for you to show up every day as a leader, as somebody who is going to engage in an organization in a way that allows you to put your input in, allows you to learn and grow and develop, allows you to value the people around you, all of those things that we just talked about. I think what you said, the, the most important is that it's not textbook. I don't think you can pick up a textbook and learn how to be a leader, even if you tried. Driving business results and making sure everybody has a voice, whether you have been you know, only a couple weeks in or you've been in a company for four years, everybody's got an input. And I think that's so important to, to understand. You spent some time at Alta. You spent some time at Michael's, which is a great store. And then we'll talk about a little bit about Macy's and some of the challenges that you've had there. That's a fantastic retailer. Was there anything that you specifically learned, a challenge that you overcame at Michael's? that really stands out to you in your time of growth and decision-making? Was there a challenge, a specific challenge during those, during those years that you remember that you could share with the audience that really stands out and the solution that you had to it? 
you know, in terms of one specific one, I'm drawing a blank on anything that I would call it that was big. I, I would tell you every day was a challenge, right? I mean, we were a privately held company that went public. We were looking at growth opportunities and how do we continue to build? You know, we had a physical network that probably was not nearly as optimized as it needed to be. We had technology solutions that we needed to replace and manage through on a budget perspective. We had an e-commerce business that we stood up and were leveraging, you know, outside parties to run and bringing that back in-house. All of those things were opportunities and challenges for us. You know, moving all the international freight, it's, it mostly comes in from China. And so, you know, being able to pick that stuff up and bring it and then honestly building my team, right? It, I inherited a team that was moving on and I needed to go rebuild them and bring in new leaders and bring in new structure and push different thoughts. And so I, I would tell you, I've never really actually stood back and said, geez, that's the one thing I'd hang my hat on. I, I, I look at the accomplishments that we made over time on being able to manage our inventory more productively, to be able to be smarter about what we were buying and where we were putting it to, you know, clean up our operations, get really professional around how we manage our expenses and how we manage our our spend to, you know, really address the flow of inventory and product and movement and try to unwind some of the bigger decisions that were made early on when the company probably didn't know they were going to be where they are today to say, okay, how do we, how do we in the midst of all of this, take a physical network and make it do something that it needs to do today, but was never built for when it was built. Those were all challenges that we faced on a, on a daily basis. One of the great memories I have is taking the QM2 bus into Manhattan with my great aunt, Aunt Pat. She'd always take us into the city. The bus would drop us off right across the street from Macy's and we'd go in and we'd always go to Macy's. I just thought it was the biggest store in the world. Strong memories of my mom taking uh, my brother and I to, to Macy's during the holiday season to see Santa Claus. And we did, and we rode up the old escalators on 34th Street. But Macy's is, is just a fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, founded in 1858, it's got great retail brands associated with it, uh, such as uh, Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury. And it just so happens that you were there during one of the craziest times in our lifetime. COVID-19 pandemic. There's a lot to talk about with Macy's, but just to start, I think it's important to bring up, you know, some of the things that we were talking, that you talked about at the Millennium Alliance event and and your keynote, which um, has a lot to do with Omnichannel. Dennis, if you could, just to, just to talk a little bit about what those years were like, kind of describe the um, overnight change that retail had. How did you really transform such an iconic brand like Macy's into such an omni-channel experience, give it or take the pandemic, because you did such a successful job there and it, and it shows. It's amazing what Macy's is doing now as in, in on omni-channel experiences. Well, first of all, thank you for that. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was all me that transformed and there was uh, certainly a lot of uh, a lot of the team and the executive group there was definitely a focus of it. It was very, it was, it was a very different time. So, you know, when I joined Macy's, I was, you know, the first chief supply chain officer that they hired. And, you know, while all the functions existed within supply chain, they really weren't ever put together. And so, you know, I joined with this, you know, kind of goal or or objective to really bring the supply chain teams together and figure out how do we leverage across all the different things we need to go do. And so that was kind of, you know, 19, getting all of that stuff stood up and put together and building out that plan and, and really had just 
got to the point of laying out, you know, getting the team set. We had made some, you know, strategic changes in our leadership team, you know, getting the team set, getting everybody ready, walking through our strategy together as a group and defining what that was. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit. And I remember very clearly uh, when we first saw it coming, you know, the very first thing we did was we went and said, well, we just need, we need to pull all our product forward out of China because we need product to sell and we think China's going to shut down. And then we realized the U.S. was shutting down and we were like, we need to stop everything. I, I bring that up because just the speed of decision making that was so important and critical at that time to be able to not make a decision and, and believe that I have to continue down that path, but the ability to say, OK, that might have been a bad call given everything that's changed now. and We need to go do something different. And we really leveraged that mentality throughout the entire pandemic. And so you know, shutting down the supply chain, restarting the supply chain, diverting product from one location to another location, trying to make as much inventory available as possible. Um, we stood up curbside, you know, with the support and help of the store team, curbside pickup um, so we could have people come pick up stuff out of the stores without going in the stores. We established all of the social distancing and PPE requirements and everything else that went into putting the building. But honestly, for me, it was really about executing on those leadership principles that we talked about, but also this idea of driving in flexibility and trying to be as smart as we could be about what we thought was going to happen next make the bets that we needed to make. And if we were wrong, pull the bets that we still could off the table and make a different one. And really through, you know, the balance of 20, that was our mentality. We took that same mentality into 21 as we saw the pandemic kind of start to wind down, but then all the supply chain issues that came up, we did the same thing. It was on a regular basis. Hey, yesterday we thought we were going to do this. Today we need to go do that. How much of that can we move or pull back or change or do something different with? And really building that muscle was an important part of what we did as a leadership team, both within supply chain and across the company to really drive the value that we did and create the solutions that we created and allowed us to really manage then what we were going to be going to do and what we wanted to go spend. And so, you know, we were cautious on inventory in 22 because we didn't know what was going to happen and, and the optimism was dying down. So we didn't forward buy a lot. We were really managing tight and wound up to be, you know, a great thing to go do given the way sales occurred. And we were right about that and, you know, where we were wrong and it had over-invested, we quickly got out of and invested into something else. And so, I would tell you that level of kind of fast decision-making, the connectivity of the team, having us all have the same kind of principles and beliefs uh, and values on how we work together and how we lead together and how we show up every day is, is probably the biggest thing that we did. I, I worked with a guy one time who, um, a great leader and somebody that I admire a lot, who said to me, look, if I'm not learning every day and teaching every day, it was a bad day. And, and I take that to work every day of what can I learn today and what, what can I help others understand? And if I learn something that's going to change what I need to go do, then let's change what we need to go do. But let's also educate and teach and help others so that they can do the same thing. One of the main topics of your keynote at the Millennium Alliance was evolving strategy to keep business moving in the right direction. We also had another panel discussion from our delegates that was moderated by Masha Shunko, a professor at the University of Washington, that when I asked her, I was talking to her a little bit after the assembly ended, and she said that the one biggest takeaway of that whole conversation and really of the whole assembly is that leaders are embracing this value of building relationships, and it's crucial for business. I know you talked about this in your keynote. 
what is the value of having these great brand partnerships and these great relationships between a supplier and a retailer? Yeah, I think that's a great question, right? I mean, as with anything, when you do something transactional, then the outcome of that transaction is what the outcome is. And unless you know exactly what you want and exactly how the world is going to be and exactly what's going to happen next, transactional relationships can get you in trouble. And so it's really easy to you know, divide your stuff up and try to get you know, multiple sources, which sometimes makes sense and sometimes doesn't. Uh, really easy to try to push people to give you, you know, some awesome deal for you that may not look good for them on paper. But at the end of the day, right, everybody's going to go get what they need for their organization. And so I, I've been a believer for a long time that this idea of creating relationships with the partners that are important to you, whether that's a product partner, whether that's a services partner, a transportation partner, gives you really the best opportunity to manage your business make sure that you're hitting the marks of what you need to hit and not locking yourself into something that you're not positive is going to happen. And so with the relationships that we built and the structures that we had, we we were able to, when we had problems, make phone calls and say, hey, I need more resources or, hey, I might have over forecasted or, hey, I have some capacity. I could take something on. Can I help you? And that goes a long way in those situations. And, and I would argue, you know, we never really know what's going to happen next, right? I, you know, it's the the statement that, you know, the the plan is useless, but the act of planning is important. You know, to me, even when you create a strategy and you plant that flag and say, this is what we're going to go do, plant that flag in sand because tomorrow may be a different day and tomorrow mm -hmm. something may happen that you didn't expect. And the ability to go pick that up and move it is something that you want. And when you put it in concrete, you're you're stuck to it. And I look at it as, you know, how do you continue to build those opportunities? And then there's some things that you're gonna, that are going to be transactional. So I'm not saying this for everything, but there are some things that are going to be transactional. But there's a lot of things out there where the relationships and the partnerships, connectivity into the other organizations and partners that you're working with that you're counting on to help deliver your your business. You need to have that level of flexibility and engagement. You should you always continually push on them to make sure the relationship is the best it could be. Absolutely. But when you start to move away from it, from being a relationship to being transactional is when I, I believe you start to put yourself at risk to miss on opportunities that you could have gotten. We had people coming to us saying, hey, I have some containers. Do you want to use them? Absolutely. There's container shortage. I'll take them 100 percent of the time. Um you know, we went to some of our product partners and said, you know, hey, we we have some capacity to be able to take some of your product. I know you're struggling. We want your product in. How do we how do we help you with that? Those those things are invaluable to managing through your business. You know, talking a little bit about kind of the future, I, I want to get into what you're going to be doing next and what you're doing now, which has been great. It's, it was great to have you as a keynote and share your experiences with, with executives uh, who are out there now facing challenges. There's no denying that supply chains and log logistics are always evolving. It's safe to say that the pandemic challenged teams. And then, the, as you said, it's put your flag in the sand. Looking towards the future, Dennis, what do you see the issues that are going on in supply chain that are going to have a big impact in the future? You know, you know, you can even say, you know, thinking about like 10 years from now, the next decade, you know, excluding a possibility of another event like a pandemic, if you will. You know, what's going to be the biggest challenges uh, going forward across the globe? Is it is it going to be poor congestion? Is it is it this idea of digital transformation where we're not at there yet? Is it restructuring? Is it inflation? You know, what do you what are your thoughts, Dennis, on where the whole supply chain industry is going? 
Yeah, good question. You know, I, I've, I'm going to try not to make any predictions in terms of what's going to happen. But you know, the reality is, you know, a lot of the issues that we faced in 2020 and 2021 weren't necessarily pandemic related. They, they were structural, they were infrastructure, they were systems. And when you look out across retail, retail in particular, but even supply chains in general, you spend a lot of money to put in a facility, a, a building, a solution. And as things have changed, and I'll give you a really simple one, right? So you can look at the expectations of digital growth is supposed to be in the call it eight to 10% range over the next five years. Awesome. That's great. Look at what total retail growth is supposed to be because it is not eight to 10%. And so what that means is, right, you're, you're not really generating incremental, you're shifting from one channel to another channel. If you built your network to be channel specific and you have a store flow path and an e-commerce flow path, you're now over on your store side and under on your digital side. But going to ask for more capacity on the digital side when your total revenue isn't going up or your total EBITDA isn't going up is a challenge for the boards. And so I think working through those issues like that, trying to get past some of these old infrastructure problems that we have infrastructure on the ports, infrastructure and transportation, you know, the, the old mentality of the way, you know, we've been thinking is going to have to evolve for us to continue to move forward and for people to be successful. What I've been spending my time doing is working with, you know, both a couple of startup companies um, that I think are really interesting in trying to solve problems from a different perspective, working with some established companies who are, you know, in the automation space, looking at how do we continue to go help support operational efficiency and effectiveness and improve the flow of goods without, you know, spending, you know, a trillion dollars to go replace the entire infrastructure at once. But how do we, how do we build onto that? I, to me, the answer going forward really comes back into that notion uh, that I talked about in the keynote, which was how do you put flexibility into a hardwired network? And there's a technology piece to that. There's an automation piece to that. There is a labor management piece to that. That all has to come together because really hard to say what the next piece of disruption is going to be or what the next challenge is going to be. There's some that are easy to call out, like I just mentioned on the, you know, the digital side versus the or the e-commerce side versus the bricks and mortar side. But it's really difficult to work your way through those answers in traditional solution sets without spending a lot of money and not putting yourself in a better EBITDA position because in general, your total growth is not going to be there. So I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting space and time to be. I, I feel like there's the opportunity for a lot of disruption in the supply chain world, whether that's on the operational side, on the transportation side, on the sourcing side, all of those places that I'm really interested in how organizations are attacking it and what providers can do to help support it. I was also going to ask uh, what what you're thinking of doing now that you are officially retired as the chief supply chain officer from Macy's. You know, is it a full circle moment where you're now going back to consultancy <laughs> or is it yeah. I think it's worth it sharing your knowledge and experience, uh, you know, with the industry? After as many years as I've had in, in the corporate world, I'm kind of, you know, at the point where, you know, if I do go back into the corporate world, it's going to be very selective and for something that I find very interesting. But what I'm I'm really focusing my time on now is kind of both, I would say it's kind of three-pronged. It's it's um advisory and and trying to, you know, work with either PE companies or startup VC startup companies on how to get growth out of solutions, what solutions make sense, what solutions don't make sense, 
where to invest, where, where should we go to consultancy of, you know, Hey, you have a problem. Let's, let's talk about the different ways to go solve it and, and leveraging, you know, my network and, and my background to provide a perspective on ways to think about problems, maybe differently than the way they've been approached before. And so far, I'll tell you, it's been fun. I've met, I've met a ton of great people and a, and a ton of, you know, really interesting folks out there building really unique and creative solutions that I think have the opportunity to really impact, you know, supply chain practices across any industry. And so it's it's been fun. It's been, you know, it's a little different than waking up every day and, you know, having your calendar booked from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Um, but, uh, but it's been interesting. And so I'm kind of just getting that started and, and working with some folks I know and putting some feelers out and having some conversations. I feel like I, I have, you know, a lot to offer people in terms of the way I approach problems and the way I think about it. Not that I have the right answers, but it's certainly, you know, a little bit of a different perspective that I think can help. I get to learn a lot. I mean, I've talked to some robotic companies and, and that's like super cool to learn all of those things. And so you know, I'm still I'm still in that that mental model of I want to learn something every day and teach something every day. And if I can do that, it's a great day. And so I'm kind of focusing my my new little startup projects all all around that. There's no surprise there. And we're excited to see where that next chapter goes for you, Dennis. Uh, you know, there's a reason you are the see it all in retail innovation and supply chain. I want to thank you for your time, Dennis. It's it's great to hear more about your story, about your life and about your career. You obviously have so much insight that you can offer supply chain leaders. And not only that, but always feel free to, and Millennium is a great place to share that knowledge with executives who are on the field, who are facing these challenges and definitely have their calendars booked from seven to seven. And thank you to our listeners, our supply chain leaders. I, I know we have a Digital Supply Chain Transformation Assembly, Enterprise AI, Supply Chain and Retail Innovation Assembly going on next year. That it's April 10th and 11th, 2024 at the Intercontinental in Chicago. If you want, Dennis's keynote is available. Uh, it was live streamed at the event on day one of the assembly, and that is available on YouTube. Dennis Malay, thank you so much for joining Millennium Live, and we'll see you soon. Awesome. Thank you, Connor. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.